Welcome to Real Estate Investing in the Real World podcast. The topic of this episode is how to turn a little into a lot with real estate. Hi, I'm Phil Pustiowski with FreedomMentor.com. I'm a full-time real estate investor. I'm a real estate mentor and coach to many of the most successful real estate investors across the United States and Canada. And in this video, I want to share with you a very exciting topic, how to parlay a little bit into a lot through the power of real estate investing. I'm sure you've heard the stories before. You've maybe read where somebody started off with $1,000 and they parlayed it into a $50 billion empire. Well, how did that happen? Right? And, and specifically, how could it work in your life? Today's market, how could you take a little bit of money and turn it into a lot? Well, I get this question a lot. Someone will come up to me and, and maybe through a messaging system, through a comment, through a question, they'll say, Phil, I've got $50,000. How should I best invest it in real estate? What should I do? Well, that's a, that's a pretty big question. And so I felt like a video, and in this case, I'm going to break it up into two videos, two parts, is required to fully flesh out and explain what the answer to that question is. Okay, so... I hope you're going to be really excited about this video. I know I am because I'm so passionate about this subject. Real estate is such an amazing avenue, such an amazing tool to be able to parlay or just create wealth. And so that's what we're going to discover in great detail here. All right, so to begin, a lot of people ask me the question, well, how much is a little? Well, I'll say that a minimum, I'm going to say that a minimum here is... MIN minimum would be, I, this is a bit arbitrary, but let's just say 15000 Okay, that's a bit arbitrary. It could be a little less. Certainly could be a lot more. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to do for this particular video is I am going to start instead with 50000 is the seed capital. And that might be more than you have. That's okay. Uh, but it'll make good for the numbers and the actual illustration that I'm trying to, to do here in the video. Okay, so this is the seed money, and this is like cash, right? Now, where could this come from? Well, a lot of places. Number one, it could be something that someone's just saved up over time. Uh, maybe it's an inheritance. Maybe it's a line of credit from their home. Maybe there's some equity in their home that they have. Maybe they have um, a, a retirement fund. And in fact, I have a great video called IRA Real Estate Investing that talks about this very special tool called a Solo 401k, which is a great way to turn your retirement uh, money into a, uh, a way to, to really do some great real estate investing. So it could come from a number of places, but for the sake of the video, let's just assume you've got $50,000 in the bank. You've got cash, okay? And so now you're asking yourself, how do I best put this into real estate to turn this little bit of money, which you may think that's not a little bit of money, but when you become wealthy, that's a little bit of money, into a lot of money, okay? All right, great. And I'm going to break this up into two sections. I'm going to break it up into part one we're going to talk about here in this video is going to be about uh, traditional investing. Traditional investing. I make a very big uh, delineation. I draw a big line in the sand uh, when I'm teaching in these, these videos between traditional investing and creative. And I have a great video on that called Creative Real Estate versus Traditional where I go into great detail as to what these differences are. I'm actually going to uh, infuse those differences here in this video simply by virtue of the fact that that's the way I have to explain it. Um, but here's how we start the traditional talk. Traditional 
is, in my opinion, it's the 90%. It's what most people do. It's how most people interact in real estate investing. And when you talk to real estate agents and mortgage brokers and most attorneys, this is all they know. Now, we're the, this is how I break it up. I start with number one, uh, what I call deal sourcing. So how was the deal sourced? Where did it come from? And it's pretty easy. I call it the two A's. A number one and A number two. A number one, agents. Agents or brokers, if you want to call it that. And A number two is auctions. Auctions. So what most traditional real estate investors do is they hire a real estate agent who goes out there in the marketplace to find them deals, right? Or those same traditional investors could go attend auctions. They could attend the foreclosure auction, the tax deed sale auction in certain states. Uh, they could also attend a uh, absolute auction that just got advertised by an auction company. Then nowadays, there's these online auctions, auction.com, uh, homesteps.com, homepath.com, HUD foreclosures. So there's several different places where you can go to auctions. And certainly there are tons and tons of real estate brokers out there, many of which uh, work with real estate investors that can help you find, quote, good deals. All right, so that's the deal sourcing of traditional. I'll talk about the pros and cons as we go along, too. Um, and the fact that I do creative, you'll find out why that is as well. All right, so one of the big details of traditional investing is you got to have funding. You've got to be able to buy the property, right? Well, with traditional, there's no options to do anything tricky. If you're at an auction, you better have the cash or at least access to the cash really quickly. If you're working with a real estate agent, they're not going to work with you if you don't have access to some money. So what typically happens is people get a loan for the vast majority of it, which I'm going to use round numbers here, 80%. So the, the typical traditional investor, and I'm, this is more on the, on the residential side, commercial, you, you, know, you may even need more like um, 65 or 70% loan, you may need 30% down, but the loan takes up the majority, but not all of it. You've got to bring some money. They call skin in the game. And where does that come in? Well, the first place, of course, is the down payment, which in a lot of situations, when you're an investor, meaning you're not living in the property, they're going to want at least 20%. I understand that there, this rule can change. There's a lot of mortgage brokers out there. There's hundreds of mortgage companies. They might have some special plan this week that'll do less than 20% down on a non-owner-occupied loan. For the most part, we'll just keep the numbers right, okay? And then, not in addition to that, you may have to pay some closing costs. And that may run, um, that's going to be above and beyond the purchase price, but that may be like 2% or something. Um, and part of the down payment, you typically give up front in the form of an earnest money. And um, they, they call it a deposit as well. Sometimes that's, that phrase is used. So I'll, use, I'll put the word deposit here as well. And so, and that will usually be, you know, maybe $1,000. I'm going to put 1% here, but it's part of this 20%, okay? It's part of that. Well, the traditional side of investing requires that you got this right here in the form of cash. So we'll go back up to here. So if you got $50,000 in cash and you had to pay what amounts to 22% um, of the purchase price, let's just say the purchase price was a total of 100 k 
So this right here was 80K. And this right here was, was 20K. All right? You with me? Okay, good. Well, it's going to get real exciting real quick. So no worries. I know some of this is just a little bit of turning the crank here. We're getting there. All right, so if... If you need to bring 20k for the down payment and then another 2%, we'll call that 2 grand for the closing costs. Now you can purchase this property and what you've put out is about 22, so you've given up a little bit less than say half of your of your 50, okay? So now that you own the property, now the question is how do you profit, right? What do you do? How do you turn in this case you use $22,000 how do you turn this $22,000 into more money? That's the question, right? Okay, two things you can do. The, the majority of investors, what they do is they rent the property. Now, when they rent the property, they might get a positive cash flow. What's the cash flow? That is the amount of money that is in rent above all of your expenses, your, which are gonna be your mortgage payment, your taxes, your insurance. And don't, let's not forget the maintenance on the property to keep the property up. And so let's say you're getting a, uh, a reasonable cash flow. This is a $100,000 house. In this particular example, I'm going to try to keep it simple. We're going to say it's $100 a month. Okay? So you get $100 a month, positive cash flow after all expenses. Okay? So at the end of the, the first year, you've just made $1,200. So you put in $22,000. You put in twenty-two thousand, and what you got out in the first year was twelve hundred. Ah, but what else do you have? You own a piece of real estate, right? And if you bought it for a hundred thousand, is it possible that perhaps when you bought it, you bought it for less than its value? Well, if you're an investor, I would hope so, right? <laughs> hope you got a decent deal on it. So you might have some instant equity. So you paid one hundred for it, but what if it's worth like one ten? Right, so you you're getting out a twelve hundred a year, but you also have this thing called equity. I'm going to do plus equity. That's that fancy word to describe how much you owe eighty versus what the value is. And here's the cool thing: as you own it, as you rent it, the the tenant is actually paying the mortgage, and a slight part of that mortgage payment goes toward principal. So your 80 becomes 79, becomes 78, becomes... So it starts to drop. Meanwhile, we hope over time that the property goes up in value, right? Now, a quick statistic. Uh, Robert Schiller, Yale professor of economics, discovered that over the long haul, from 1900 to 2000, that single-family homes do not appreciate in value. On average, they keep pace with inflation. That's not all bad because inflation is 2 to 3%. So if we just say that on average a $100,000 home is going to go up by 3%, what you have is this, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I want to use the word appreciation, but I'm going to use it here. It's going up in value uh, in, in this example by 3%. Now some of you all know that we had a, a real estate crash in 2007, 8, 9, 10, and all of a sudden uh, there was no appreciation. It was, it was you know, absolutely... Uh, downfalling in many parts of the United States. Not all parts of Canada, but many parts of the United States. So it, this doesn't always happen, but that's part of the goal here of this traditional side of investing when you're renting is you're getting cash flow and the, um, 
the, the debt is being paid down slowly, and then hopefully the value, you're getting some appreciation. Okay, you follow me? And I'm sorry there's a lot going on here, but uh, that's the simplicity of rent, uh, rental um, process of profiting. Now, one other thing about this money right here, it's very tax-advantaged. Cash flow is very tax-advantaged. I have some great videos on that as well. So technically, in this example, you probably wouldn't be paying any federal income tax on this money right here. This would be tax-free money because depreciation uh, would be a phantom expense on your tax return. And then here's the other cool thing. As the property appreciates, and as you pay down the debt, you start to build up this thing called equity. Now, if you own a piece of property for more than one year, you can then either resell it, or you could sell it with a 1031 exchange, and if you resell it just the normal way, you'd be paying long-term capital gains, which for some people that have a really high income, that's a really good deal. Um, or if you do a 1031 exchange, you take all of your profits, all of your gains from, from the sale of this thing, and you put it into the next property. And that's how you're turning a little into a lot. Uh, that's a big way to do it because you're not paying tax at the point that you do the 1031. So let's say you're taking, you know, let's say this thing sold for 120 and you're in at 100, there's $20,000 in profit there. Well, if you take that 20 grand and you move it into the next deal, that was tax-free, well, they call it tax-deferred, because you, you didn't actually pay tax at the point you brought that 20000 in the New Deal. And hypothetically, theoretically, you could just keep 1031-ing all the way until, uh, until you head to heaven. So there you go. All right, so profit number one is, is to do the rental. Now, the other thing you can do, and um, just to make things clear again, I'll, I'll, I'll move this thing out. The other way you profit is that you, you I'm going to assume you use this phrase, you fix and flip. Fix and flip. And so let's say we're going to use the same example, but it needed work. So you got twenty-two thousand at the purchase, but then it needed another, say, twenty-five in fix-up. I'm going to call it rehab. So you you take your fifty thousand. You've got twenty-two thousand in the form of the down payment and the and the uh, closing costs. The other twenty-five thousand in the rehab costs. So now you're in the deal at, at let's say one forty-seven. Plus, you had some holding costs and utilities and all that stuff. So we'll just round number it, and you're in the deal at 150. And then what if you sell it for 200? Okay, so this is, I'm going to say in it. My mentor always used the phrase in it, so that's what we'll do there. Uh, and then 200,000 is what your sales price is, and you have to pay commissions and closing costs and whatnot. So maybe you walk away here with uh, with 40,000. Okay. Well, you put in 50, and you got your 50 back, plus you got your 40. That's another way to turn a little into a lot. Well, this is going to be, if, it's, if this was done in, within a year, you're going to have to pay um, uh, short-term capital gains taxes, which are the same as uh, normal uh, federal income taxes in the United States. And so you're going to have to pay some good, good taxes on that, depending on what your tax bracket is. Let's just say your tax bracket is 25%. Um, so that's going to lop off 10 grand. Uh, that's going to be your taxes on that, so you'll end up with about thirty. All right, so thirty thousand dollars on top of your fifty, so you turn your fifty into eighty. That ain't bad, right? Beats poking the eye. Well, if if you do this, this fixed and flip, maybe more than once in a year, then maybe you can even go a little bit further, right? You take your eighty and go do it again. I will say that typically traditional investors 
have trouble doing more than about one or two of these in a year. First of all, it can take several months to source the deal. Then to actually close on it takes another month or two. Fixing it up could take several months. I mean, you're going to be, you may be tied up uh, with your 50 grand. You may tie that up for seven, eight months at a time. So uh, absolutely, that's another way to turn a little into a lot. And so that right there is the traditional ways in which people take some money and turn into more. And uh, I'll talk about the pros and cons now. Okay, so the biggest pro to the traditional side of investing is that it doesn't require a lot of intelligence, not a lot of education. So I'm just going to use the phrase simple. So long, and this is the big uh, so long as, so long as you're working with competent people, a good real estate agent, a good mortgage person, a good closing attorney, if you're working with good people, I'm going to say good people, this business, this business of traditional investing is simple. But you got to have money. Because the real estate agents, the, the, uh, the mortgage person, all those people don't care about how incredibly ambitious you are in life and how you want to become the next Donald Trump. They don't care about that if you don't have some money. And so some of you watching this video are shaking your head and you're saying, yeah, Phil, that's, that's where I'm at. Okay, hang on. When you hear about the creative investing, you'll be really excited. Okay, so if you've got good people, this business is very simple. You don't need a lot of uh, education. You don't need a lot of training. Um, you literally just tell those people, look, this is what I'm looking to do, and I want to make a little bit of money. Help me, right? And that's a huge pro. So these are the pros. Now, when I say it's simple, it also means that, and I don't take this the wrong way, uh, but it doesn't require much intelligence. And so uh, if you're worried about your ability to make good business, crisp business decisions, um, you know, if you hire good people, they can make them for you. Okay. Um, so though that is a huge pro for doing traditional investing. But again, you do have to work with the right people because the old phrase of fool and his money will soon be parted. There's a lot of people in the real estate industry, uh, real estate agents and uh, mortgage people and the like and developers and whoever, who uh, if they see you got $50,000 on you and, uh, and you look like you've got the word sucker written across your forehead, they, uh, they'll find a way to uh, help you part from that money. So you do have to have the ability to assess good people to work with. Otherwise, you're going to have to get a, a, a strong education even to be a traditional investor. Uh, another benefit here is that um, there's, uh, there's no costs uh, for deal sourcing. Since other people are sourcing your deals, whether it's auctions or, or agents or the like, uh, you don't have to put any money or energy or thought into finding the deals. Because let other people do that for you. Just, you, know, you yes, you, have to, you may have to go to more than one auction, um, but you're not actually physically having to go out and reach out to these, uh, these potential deals, right? So you don't have to have any real um, uh, skills as far as communication is concerned because all that's taken care of by somebody else. Um, traditional investing actually fits really well if somebody is uh, maybe overseas, right, and they want to invest in the United States and they're in Japan. Well, um, you know, it, creative investing, as we'll talk about in, the, in part two, won't even be an option for you because it'd be too difficult. Whereas traditional, you just hire some other people to do everything for you, right? Okay. Those are the pros. What are the cons? I am glad you asked. All right, so traditional real estate has uh, several cons to it, uh, all of which are incredibly important for you to recognize. The, the first one is it's rigid. Rigid. 
it's a box and if you don't fit into the box then you don't get in very rigid so it means that um you have to close on the deal with somebody's money some sort of money and i didn't mention this thing called hard money uh which i mentioned in some of my other videos because typically traditional deals and i probably should have made the line a little bigger it's a pretty it's a this goes number three, uh, uh, marginal. The deals tend to be marginal, and here's why. Because everybody else can do them. It doesn't take a lot of intelligence. And so there's not a lot of barriers to entry, which means a lot of people can go look for these deals. And I hear a lot of complaints right now, like as of today kind of complaints from traditional investors that go, Phil, there's no deals out there. Well, okay, that's the problem with traditional investing, is that you have to compete with so many different people. Competition. When you have, in business, when you have low barriers to entry, meaning anybody can get in um, that has a little bit of money, and there's a lot of people with a little bit of money out there, um, then you have a lot of competition. The competition creates a lot of marginal deals. Marginal meaning you don't really get a great discount on it. If you don't get a great discount on it, there's very little chance for you to use a hard money loan. So typically, you're going to have to qualify for a loan. And let me ask you this. Have you ever qualified for a loan? Even if you've got perfect credit, great money, great job, and a great loan application, it's still hard to get a loan, isn't it? Yes, it is. So qualifying for a loan, you have to qualify for a loan in almost all cases. Um, yes, you could do traditional investing by raising private money and some of those sorts of things, Absolutely, but for the most part, it's all about you've got to have the money. That creates this rigidity. You know, there's no th there's nothing creative there. It's all you must get money from somewhere. So traditional investors, their biggest complaint, their biggest concern, their biggest problem is this. They're all concerned about this. And they all think that if they had all the money in the world, then this would no longer be a problem. That's true. But then they would potentially be buying more and more marginal deals. So Traditional, you've got the rigidity, the fact that you need the money, the fact that you qualify for a loan. Quick aside, by the way, read a great article today. Um, I remember about five, six years ago, I was reading in Default Servicing News. Um, that's a that's a, a a publication that typically only bank presidents read. And I was I was I was I'm always trying to stay one leg ahead. And it said something along the lines of that the plan for the banks was that after this foreclosure thing uh, went through, they were going to wait several years, and then once the people were back on their feet, they were going to start filing default judgments to collect the money that they lost. That's what I read, and I remember going, wow, that'd be scary. I read an article today that says, get this, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have turned over half of all their default judgments to collection companies, and these people, these collection companies, are going after people. People that, you know, seven, eight years ago, they went, for, they went to foreclosure, and they've just, their whole life's been turned around, they've saved up the money, everything's good, and then, wham, they get hit with a, with a, uh, a sheriff knocking on their door saying, please show up in court. It's real. It's happening right now. So one of the problems with a loan is that if, for whatever reason, something goes wrong, and so that's the other thing. I'm going to say, you know, when things go wrong, when things go wrong, they can go real wrong with traditional investing if you got a loan. I mean, they, they can get real wrong real bad. And so my heart goes out to anybody who had a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan uh, and went into foreclosure, you know, 
three, four, five years ago, and now all of a sudden they're getting door, door knocked by a sheriff that they have to show up in court for a deficiency judgment. That's real. It's happening out there. That is, that is so unfortunate. And here's the thing. The typical uh, deficiency judgments were on the investors. They don't do, I mean, the homeowners, they figured in a lot of cases, the homeowner didn't have the money. But investors, well, they may have money because they're investors. So a lot of the deficiency judgments went to the investors that let the houses go to foreclosure. Yet another reason why I pushed so hard for short sales. All right, I went off on a tangent. All right, we're back. So there's a lot of cons to traditional investing. Um, this one right here is a major one, though. Now, there is just not a lot of good deals out there from the traditional standpoint. It is very hard to find them. And you've got to look, 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 look. And here's the other issue. when You have no control. So there's no control over the next batch of good deals. Because what if some foreign investor, what if some hedge fund starts buying a bunch of the deals locally, which has happened to a lot of traditional investors? They have no control over that. So there's no way to produce the predictability. So you want to turn a little into a lot, but what's happening is you get a good deal, and then there's a dry spell for six months. Good deal, dry spell for, for 12 months. That's really difficult, and that means that you're turning a little into a lot slowly. So that is really the, the, the last big con, is this is a very slow way to do it. It just takes longer for all the reasons I've pointed out here, not the least of which is money. I mean, think about it. All right, so you have $50,000, but what if you're not bringing in a ton of money from your job? So there's no way you're going to replace that 50 with another 50 next year. How the heck are you going to buy a whole bunch of rental properties when you're starting off with just 50? Well, it'd be very difficult, wouldn't it? So it, it can be done, obviously. You rent it out, maybe a couple of years later, you sell it, and then you do the 1031 exchange. But again, it's slowly, right? Okay, so these cons right here, uh, to me, are no fun. I know there's a better way, and I'm going to share that with you on part two. So I hope you've enjoyed part one of how to turn a little into a lot with real estate. And I know some of this was basic. Maybe there's a couple of snippets in there that were just complete aha moments for you. What I'm excited to share with you in part two is how you eliminate many of these cons and how what you can do is really accelerate how you turn a little into a lot, how you reduce some of these, these potential huge problems, so you reduce what goes wrong, uh, you, you maintain control, you don't need as much money, and you have a lot of flexibility. We're going to talk about all that through creative real estate investing.